Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8? I know I'm in the path of pastor who's speeding like a snail towards Romans 8, but that's okay. By the time he gets there, he'll make clear what I hopefully won't make muddy today, but uh, Romans chapter 8 is a good place for us to start this morning. Man, we had a lot of life-changing things happen for folks this week, haven't we? Man, it's, it's neat to see that, and the Lord is faithful through all of this and uh, for bringing us together this morning. So we're grateful to be here, and uh, once again, we're looking at our study on sanctification. For those who are visiting for the first time, uh, hopefully uh, you're joining us here nine weeks in so far, but we've been talking about how do we, how do we change? How, how is the, what is the biblical pattern, the biblical uh, principles for how we change? And uh, that's sort of under the subtitle of sanctification in the Christian life, how we grow through a progress of time and over, over, uh, over diligent application of ourselves to practicing the truths of Scripture. And so we've arrived uh, at probably what I'd say is like the third stage of um, the third the third stage of our study after confession and repentance. We're going to get into something called mortification this morning, and it sounds pretty ominous, but uh, it's actually very needed and very helpful for us to to consider this morning. So um, I'm going to be quoting from a, a small little booklet written by a guy named John Owen. This is a Banner of Truth book, Puritan paperback. Uh, mortification of sin. Trust me, this guy's insights in the Bible are far better than his personal style and taste and dress. Okay, so um, I don't know what was going on back in those days, but... <laughs> so, it's an excellent book. Uh, I, I, you will be blessed if you pick it up and have a chance to read it, okay? And uh, hopefully you'll, you'll enjoy that. All right, Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at just one verse that's going to provide for us our outline upon which we're going to hang up several ideas this morning from Romans chapter 8 and then verse, well, I'm going to begin in verse 12 and read 12 and 13 together. All right, it says this, so then brethren, we are, so then brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That last phrase is what I want to focus in. But if you by the Spirit are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. (laughs) Father, thank you for the privilege to be here together this morning and setting your word together. Open our hearts and our eyes. Help us to apply these things by your Holy Spirit so that we might have uh, victory over sin that that continues to afflict and to uh, plague us. Help us, Lord, to... Uh, walk in the spirit to uh, if we walk in the spirit the bible says we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh help us to understand more deeply what that means we'll trust you for help in this regard in jesus precious name amen so as i said the next journey next mile in our journey of sanctification is the mile long minefield of mortification i say this because it's here that we take up the battle for sin uh it's not enough to simply confess sin, to acknowledge that it exists, and, and to even repent from it. That is to have a change of mind and perspective and a mindset about it. It's now time to take up the sword and to slay it. And this is important for us to understand that it's time to fight sin, not just in the most apparent ways, but to fight it in every quarter of your life, every area where it might appear. I'm reminded of in June 1940, 
I mean, I don't think anybody here was probably born June 1940, <laughs> I can tell. Uh, that was a little bit before any of our times, but in June 1940, uh, the new, the Nazi war machine was moving menacingly closer to an inevitable attack upon Great Britain, where Prime Minister Winston Churchill faced a grim reality in England that, would, that, he, they would need, that England would likely need to fight to the last man in order to withstand the German juggernaut that was devouring up Western Europe. With France on the precipice of defeat and soon to fall, and all of England in, in stunned horror, Winston Churchill, who had only been installed as new prime minister only a month before this, made his way to the House of Commons and Parliament to address the world war that was about to engulf them. The atmosphere was tense. They were, they were all fear-stricken. Chamberlain's policy of accommodation with the enemy had proven to be an utter failure, and surrender seemed to be the foregone conclusion. The heart to fight, the impossible fight, was nearly all gone. And Churchill then would stand and deliver a historic speech that I think, I believe, would turn the course of history, for he roused all of Britain to meet the enemy with hostility and honor. And he preached, he, he didn't preach, he spoke this great speech called, We Shall Fight Them on the Beaches. Maybe you've heard this speech before. But he said this, among other things, to, to bring the heart of his countrymen to the battle. He said, even though large tracts of Europe and many old famous states have fallen and may fall into grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of the Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and on the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and with growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Now, I love that sentiment, don't you? This is the heart of the Christian, okay? We will fight. We will never surrender. We're going to fight everywhere. We're going to fight in the thoughts. We're going to fight in the desires. We're going to fight in the affections of our heart. We're going to fight everywhere where sin or the flesh may have a hold and have control in our lives. It is a fight that requires no surrender. So if we're going to mortify our sin, we, need, we all need to have the same fortitude and the same commitment to engage sin in the seas and the oceans and landing grounds and streets and hills and wherever the cost may be, he said. And so we also say, we shall never surrender. So last week, we began to look at the biblical signs of sorrow. I kind of left off in the middle of it and felt like it was like a, it felt like a dog's breakfast when I was done. It was just horrible. So I just want to go back and kind of solidify here. Here's some fruits of what we're looking for in repentance. And repentance, the first part of repentance, uh, in fact, the, the old way that they used to think about repentance was it was in two parts. Repentance is comprised of first this thing called mortification, and then the second part called vivification, which means basically this new uh, commitment to walking in the spirit and the spirit bringing forth life and fruit out of a life surrendered to Christ and walking in obedience to the spirit. So we want to look at eight signs of the God, of godly sorrow. What are, what are we looking for? What changes when someone's really repentant? What do you notice about that? Well, first of all, you'll see a change in your demeanor. Um, I, use, I use that word demeanor. Every time I do, I think of this guy in my church before who used to say, well, he used to talk about Demeanor to better, he'd call it. And he basically, he'd always say that funny little phrase. It makes me think of that every time I say that. But anyway, I don't mean being meaner. I mean your demeanor, okay? Your, your earnestness changes. You get more serious about there's a surging impulse in your heart to deal with sin's claims over, your, over you, to rule you. 
The reluctance is all gone. Your apathy and passivity towards sin is removed. You're no longer inviting and ignoring and otherwise indulging in sin. There's a diligence and there's a readiness to go to war. That's what changes in repentance. Then your motivations changed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, another fruit is vindication. Vindication is a wonderful motivation for your repentance. You no longer desire to be taken advantage of by this sin anymore. You're sick and tired of it. You're fed up with acquiescing to the flesh's control and sin's dominion. You know you belong to Christ now and you serve him alone. So you seek to clear yourself of all the former disloyalties and treasonous acts of sin you've been doing, and you want to demonstrate the fruit of your repentance by clearing your testimony and genuinely proving your loyalty to God's word and to Christ. And that's marked by further earnestness and vindication. Okay? Thirdly, we see in your attitude changes. Now, your attitude's not, no longer this self-pity, soothing, self-soothing, uh, longing for the comforts of that sin anymore. Now what used to bring you delight and pleasure and, um, and comfort, you now hate with an intense indignation, a, a wrath. You don't feel the former comforts and sympathies and pleasures and delights in your sin anymore. The sin that you once took delight in, now when you think about it, inside of you there's a hostility and a hatred towards it. You're full of wrath against your sin and how you were so presumptuous to sin against God. That is a work of God's spirit to turn your heart from loving your sin to hatred of it. What also changes in repentance? Well, your disposition changes. You now have a fear of God. It displaces, it, now, your fear of God now displaces the fear you once had for being exposed. Uh, I'm not so concerned about keeping my sin covered and hidden anymore. I want to walk in the light as he's in the light and have fellowship with him. I want to walk um, coram dio, that is to say, before the face of God, to walk in the light as he's in the light, First John 1, 7 would tell us. Your desire changes. Yeah. becomes evident when you're, when you're trying to address someone on a specific sin issue, and the response is the more concerned about the exposure piece. You yeah. The more, the more concerned about getting embarrassed about it for people, and that's more important than the righteous view of God of, on their situation. So when someone starts turning around, and most people when they're, who have confront sin situation, I tell them sometimes, they try to control their fall. Mm-hmm. You know, they try yeah. to manage the information. Who knows? Who doesn't know? They, they're trying to manage that. But the moment that you're, you're, you're just really aware of, of God's view and his holiness, as a to that, you may go of all that for the sake of making it the, the right in his eyes. So that, that fear is, is, is a big indicator of how we respond, what we're really concerned about uh, in our response to sin. Exactly. Good point. Yeah, Mark. Real quick, Dave, just to follow up what Pastor was saying is that in the absence of the fear of God, you always have fear of consequences. You don't have a, you don't have a neutral zone. You always default right. to the fear of consequences, which is suck. That's true. So um, it's just said here in this passage. It's just fear. It doesn't give it qualifying fear, but we understand that that's the real reality and the practical distinction that happens is there's a fear, a recognition that. I'm not so much concerned what others will think of me at this point. At this point, I just want to walk in God, in, in, in light of God's presence in his favor. I want him to be approving of my life. I want to seek what pleases the Lord at this point. I, um, and that's the driving, you know, that's what I say here is our, our disposition t- towards, towards our, our repentance. That's helpful to have the clarifications there. Your desire is longing 
I think that's an interesting word to use here. Uh, your desires are what used to take you into sin in the first place. Remember, James 1 tells us that when your lusts have conceived, it brings forth sin. <laughs> now you have a different kind of desire. Your desires have repl- been substituted and replaced. Now it sends you, instead of sending it to self-gratification and sin, you're aiming your desires in the God-pleasing direction. There's a renewed drive to please God now. That signals repentance. Okay. Also, your passion has changed. You have a zeal. What is zeal? It's a hot, intense passion for God and his righteousness that now is propelling you forward in the pursuit to be holy. And then you have a new crusade. That is a new mission, I guess you'd say, in life, to avenge the wrong that was done, that, you're, that you've done. Not to, not to, not to pay back your, the penalties of your sin, but as a, as a way of trying to mitigate the consequences of your sin. You know, sin has consequences. It always does. Um, your sin never just affects you. It always has reverberating effects that affect others who share life with you. Um, and damage is done to the people you sin against. Those types of things, you're, you become motivated to put those things to right. Perhaps through uh, restitution or repayment of some kind. Not to gain their forgiveness, but as a token of the change that repentance has reproduced in your life. Think of Zacchaeus, right? When the Lord came to his house, he evidenced this repentance that showed up by desiring to put to right the things that he had wronged. And, God, and Christ blessed him for that. And then your goal is a demonstrated innocence. This is important. You know someone's really repentant. You know you're really repentant when you're back on the path to holiness and you're pursuing sanctification and that you relish the opportunities. You welcome the opportunities to demonstrate your purity before Christ. You don't resent other people's probing questions of your life or people's inspection of your conduct. Instead, you crave it. You welcome it. You desire that. You want to live a life in the light, a transparency before for God and for before your brothers and sisters in Christ who care for you. And so the can I amplify this for absolutely, you? yeah. Great. I want to say from a elder's point of view. So, like, whenever we're looking at someone who's fallen in sin and you're trying you're trying to help them walk through that, the question is often, well, how do you know if they're repentant? I mean, you know. We know everything. We know all the right things to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where do you go from there? So the real ability is to walk through this. And here's some, a lot of these things we've mentioned are, are a lot of these indicators. We're looking at seeing the last one, demonstrated innocence. You know, someone who, oh, yeah, I'm sorry I did this, but I don't want anybody to hold me accountable. I don't want anybody to, to have access to look into my life. I don't want my wife to have a password to see what I'm actually doing. Right. All those things are... Our red flags to yep. what you're saying over here. So, whenever we're, whenever you see in a situation where people are like, well, so and so, they they've asked for forgiveness. Why aren't they restored? Why isn't the church affirming them? Why isn't well, we're walking through their life and we're trying to we're trying to examine. Are they repenting? Us? We're not. We're digging down the problem with that. Exactly right. So here, a lot of these indicators you mentioned are really good. This really helps us. As a, as, a, as a pastoral staff, shepherding staff, to evaluate the saints to see where they're at spiritually. Because they're not going to help them. They're going to be able to help them if they haven't come to, to the end of some of these things. Exactly right. Exactly. So I, I put this all in the... I, I didn't mean for this to be a grid by which you're assessing other people's repentance per se, although that has to happen. I want you to think, turn this back on yourself and look at your own repentance... Does your repentance bear these 
signs of godly sorrow. When you repent, do they really, do, I mean, is there a change in these areas of your life, these significant areas? Can you honestly attest to the fact that there's a transformation that's happened here? Because if not, your repentance is shallow. It isn't fully developed. It's not bearing forth the full 2 Corinthians 7 fruit that we're told it should be showing here. So I'm sure you're all thinking about someone who's wronged you and say, yeah, that person never repented. See, they didn't do that, that, and that. I want you not to do that this morning. I want you to say, wait, wait a minute. When I sin, is this what's evident in my life when I repent? Okay? I want it to work in your heart first and primarily this morning. So these are the things you preach to yourself. You should be preaching, preaching all this to yourself if you can. Walk through these passages and really press these hard into your heart, embed them into your mind. So then, brethren, we are, not under, we, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die, but continuing the thought that you're under obligation, under, under obligation, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now there's a couple things here. Um, to point out as far as what is the flesh? If I ask you the question, what is the flesh? I, I, that question got asked one time in an in a undergraduate class I was taking one day, some, some, a class I was sitting in a room with 300 other Christian college students, and the professor asked Socratically, as you good professors do, what is the flesh? He asked, and he offered that up to the class, and uh, pretty soon no answers came forward, so he simply just reached down and grabs a fistful of meat on his forearm. He says, this is nothing more than your own body, he says. It's, it's not complicated any further than that. And that might be a common answer, a common idea. Is the flesh simply, simply just our bodies? Well, that's not how it's being used here in this passage. That definition that he gave that day went unchallenged, but that, that definition of the flesh has been challenged by reformers for 500 years. Equating the flesh with your body is what makes monks of various orders of Catholic religion uh, beat their bodies and bloody themselves and mutilate themselves and attempt to literally put their flesh to death. Uh, Misconception of the flesh being equated with the body, that's not what's being spoken of here. I think MacArthur helped us with a, a nice summary of what the flesh really is. The flesh is the ugly complex of sinful desires. That includes ungodly motives, the affections of your heart, principles, purposes, words, and actions that sin generates through your body. Your body's the vehicle of the expression of the flesh. Okay, So it's not the body itself that's the problem. It's the principle that motivates in your life. The desires, the motives, the affections, the things that you love, the things you desire, the things you want. Um, the words that come spilling out of your mouth when you um, when you uh, don't get what you want, perhaps these actions represent the flesh, okay, and they are seated in the heart. So Jesus had a body, but he did not have a corrupted flesh, right? His flesh isn't like ours, wasn't like ours. Um, so the body isn't necessarily sinful. There's a distinction in the scriptures between the flesh, or the, rather the, between the body the Greek word soma, and the Greek word sarx, which is the flesh. It's a distinction that Scripture maintains throughout. So the point of this principle is that we can live in the flesh, the body, but not according to the flesh. There's a distinction made there, and I want you to understand that what I'm talking about when I say the flesh this morning, I'm talking about the things that operate within your heart, the, the motivating principles of affections and desires and lusts and things that are 
in the secret heart, the secret life of your of your mind and, and, and life. So all right, so looking at this passage, Romans eight verse eight thirteen, I've got basically five components that I think uh, are helpfully illustrated for us here. Number one, you'll see in this passage, Romans 8.13, it says, For if you, by the Spirit, are putting to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. Who are the, who's culpable, or that is responsible, primarily for the act of mortification in this passage? Who is to take on that duty and that responsibility? You. You, believer. You, individual believer, in fact. So, I want to emphasize here that it's a personal duty for every single individual in here. This is one, the, one and only, the one and only one person who can do battle against the deeds of your flesh is you. Most sins in your life that you'll fight are fought mano y mano with the unseen realm of, in the unseen realms of your own heart and mind. And the sins of your flesh can create a great deal of suffering on others around you, those who you share your life with, your wife, your husband, your children, your extended family, and although they feel the effects of your sins of flesh, they are powerless to fight them. So they watch you and they expect you and they're counting on you to step up and, and take the fight up on your, on, on your own behalf. And as much as they would love to take up that fight with you, oftentimes they have no active role beyond prayer and encouragement and sometimes just biblical counsel. So this is a personal battle. If you do not take up the flesh against your own, if you not take up the fight against your own flesh, if you don't put up any resistance against this, then there's no promise for you to prevail. It's not like sometimes you hear people say, "Well, you just need to let go and let God turn over the entire battle of sin to the Lord." I grew up in a church where they preached this quite extensively. They used the illustration of a hot air balloon. They say the the law of the spirit overcomes the law of the, the law of sin and, and the flesh, and they would say. It's like a hot air balloon. All you need to do is climb into the basket and stay in the basket. Stay in Christ. And the, the law of the Spirit, which is like the law of the hot air balloon, will carry you higher. And you'll get this higher life experience, this higher life teaching. All you must do is abide in Christ without explaining that I have an active role. I'm not just a passive passenger in the hot air balloon. I have a role to fulfill. I have a battle to fight. There's a responsibility that lays upon me from this verse. I don't even know how they would even understand this verse if they were pressed hard with it. So you have a personal role. You need to take this up on your own account, okay? Uh, you're not in the battle alone, but you, it is your primary fat fight to take up, okay? Number two, the condition of mortification. This is interesting. There's a big conditional word in this verse, and it's the word if. And everything rests on this if. Okay? If you look here at Romans 8, 20, uh, 13, it says, For if, if by the Spirit you are putting the death, the deeds of the body, you will live. If, John Owen would say, it expresses the certainty of a relationship between mortifying and living. That means, basically, if you're using the means of the Holy Spirit to mortify your sin, you will have and possess and persevere unto eternal life. That's how closely mortification is tied with the Christian life. In fact, if you had read Romans 8, the entire chapter, you'll see that the, that's been the, 
the whole thrust and the direction Paul's going. He's saying you're, you're now don't have any condemnation. You're now walking according to the Spirit. The Spirit is now some, uh, commanding your life. You have the Spirit indwelling in you. And because of that, the Spirit of God is going to uh, motivate you to do battle with the remaining elements of, skin, of sin that, that, uh, that still are, are defeated, yes, but they are not fully, um, fully mortified. So Paul is pack, compacting a ton of theology in a very small frame of, of verse here, making eternal life culminating the, the culminating result of a believer's responsible personal duty. That means spiritually-minded believers will be using the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit to put the sin to death, put the sin, oh, sorry, put the sin to death in their lives. I will talk more about how that's done in just a minute here. What does it mean to use by the Spirit? The cause of mortification is by the Spirit. When we say, do we mean, well, I, I, sometimes you tell believers, hey, you need to, you, the Spirit of God is your means, your instrument to do battle with sin. Sometimes they just default to the mentality of like, okay, well then it's his, it's his, it's his battle. I'll just kind of hang back and do nothing. And that's not what's entailed in this idea of using the Spirit. The Spirit is actually, we're told in Scripture, that the Spirit empowers us to do what we cannot do ourselves. The Spirit actually brings, to, brings you into action here. Okay, uh, John 15, 5, we're reminded, Christ said, without me you can do nothing. So you're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. You're dependent entirely upon Him. And there's a conscious acknowledgement of that and a conscious... Um, uh, uh, assessment of that in your activity as you go about uh, killing sin. Number two, um, it tells us here, the Spirit actually engenders in our hearts fruits that are contrary to the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, in verses 19 through 24, you'll see there's a list. Before there's the classic fruits of the Spirit passage, there's a listing out of the deeds of the flesh. You want to know what the flesh is? Here's what it is. The deeds of the flesh are evident. That means they're clearly identified, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions, envying and drunkenness and carousing and things like these. Not an exhaustive list, but these are the things which he says originate from the flesh. And that those who practice such things will not even inherit. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? So don't be deceived into thinking that, you know, Christians are known to habitually practice these things and that it's okay, that, this is, that they could still remain Christians. Scripture tells us that's a false notion. You need to disabuse yourself of that idea. Instead, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So you see the Spirit of God is pitted in conflict against the lusts and desires and deeds of your flesh. And the Spirit of God is what produces these qualities out of your life. And if you're cooperating with the Spirit and you're submitted to Him, these fruits result to the exclusion of the deeds of the flesh. In other words, as you, as you fully are more uh, yielded to the Lord and committed to obedience of his scriptures and reframing your heart and your mind with the scriptures and the teaching of the word of God, you produce fruits that displace the, the bad deeds of the flesh. Okay? So, spirits engendering these things in your heart. He also exemplifies a pattern by which you are to walk. 
in Galatians 5, uh, 16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and, that is a, a consequence is coming, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You, as long as you walk with the Spirit, you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. Um, so, this is something we can penetrate more deeply into later, but I, I think I want to see the Spirit is not just putting you in passive mode. It's not putting your life on pause and you're just kind of checking out. You have a responsibility to walk, okay? Um, to pursue, persevere, to continue to make a lifestyle that's yielded to the, script, to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit also energizes your will and your work to please Christ. You know the verse. For it is God who's at work in you. God's working in you. So you can't do these things of yourself, of your own strength. All of the world's religious systems, moral, social, political, psychological, medical, and ethical systems, all of them are essentially a measure to keep men restrained in his sin. The best they can do is penalize sin or discourage it or suppress it or rename it or ignore it or punish it. But there's nothing among the world's systems that you'll ever find that says you can kill sin, except for here in the pages of the Bible. Only here do we find that in the scriptures that a spirit-filled believer can actually kill the sin that remains in their own flesh. And it's not by a prescription of writing more rules, more restrictions, making, uh, you know, making more laws and more ordinances. That's not the hope for you to kill sin. In fact, all those things do is maybe aggravate sin or maybe suppresses it for a time, later maybe exposes it or penalizes it, but it does not kill it. Morality and religion are only partially ways to preoccupy yourself in performing certain religious practices. You can pray, you can fast, you can meditate, you can do all these things, but even the most fastidious scrupulosity of, a, of, a, of anyone cannot really accomplish the killing of sin. It's only by the Spirit. It's the only means. And that's what it means here. We use the, the Holy Spirit is instrumental in the, in the defeat of sin here. We'll, we'll uh, get practical about that in just a little while. Let's look here finally at the command. The command of mortification. You'll see that number four there. The actual command is put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death the deeds of the body. How, what is meant by that? How do, we, how do we make our fleshly desires and ambitions and affections and lusts, how do we make them dead? Well, um, Owen gives us some helpful definitions here. He's, um, before I do that, let me show you this. Paul spoke, speaking again to the Galatians 5. Galatians 5 is a good passage, by the way. If you're really interested in getting serious about sin in your life, habitual sin that's taken hold, you need to study carefully, line by line, word by word perhaps, through Galatians chapter 5, because that's incredibly helpful to understanding what's actually going on here. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. What is happening when we want to kill sin? Well, sin, uh, rather, is uh, a mortification it is, is a habitual weakening of the desires for sin. I like that phrase from this book, Mortification of Sin. It's a habitual weakening of the desires. Mortification basically is a process of crucifixion. You're crucifying your sins to death. It's putting your sins to death incrementally and gradually. As your sin becomes apparent to you, you deliberately and earnestly dismember them and maim them, choking off whatever gives it life and vitality. Whatever moves your flesh to consider sin, you destroy it. 
Now, you must notice immediately that the battle with your sin doesn't begin with the act of sin, because by the time you're perpetuating the act of sin, it's too late to take measures to stop. You're already doing it. That doesn't mean you should just continue freely, but it just means that you have blown past where the scripture places you, should be placing you in the battle. Okay? Notice in this verse, we are to be crucifying the flesh where? At the level of passions and lusts. That means we need to get at what are we after? What do we, does our heart want? What does our heart desire? What are we trying to accomplish? What do we hope to gain? What's the payoff for why we're doing what, what, what we consider doing in, sinful, in, sin, in activity of sin? What are we trying to do? What's our heart desiring? Get at it at the lust level, at the passion level. You need to know how these things stage themselves up before you commit yourself to working out the desires of your flesh. In other words, you've got to lock on what's motivating you. You have to get at the motivations behind why you sin. You've got to get an active scan of your heart going. You don't, I know it's hard because we're busy and we get tied into what we're doing all the time, but we need to always be scanning our heart and mind, making sure what we're thinking, and what we're, that our feelings and our thinking and everything that we desire to do is being squared up with the word. That, that means we've got to have scripture in our, in our minds to be scanning the life and making sure that what we're doing is, is pleasing to the Lord. Now, you must operate your inner thought life with all the sobriety and vigilance of a Roman executioner. You are conducting a crucifixion of your flesh. You must be a sentinel of your own soul. And by that, I mean you're taking thoughts captive. Remember this verse from 1 2 Corinthians 10, 3? Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What are these powerful weapons? I, I need these. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. Well, speculations, what are, what are those? This idea has, has the idea of arguments and um, has the idea of reasonings, speculations, things that occur in your mind, the rationale, the thought processes behind why you think you can get away with this sin. Why do you think you can indulge in this sin? What do you think this sin is going to give you? He said, you, you, take attack, you attack those things. Every lofty thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, and you're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It means you have a, you, you're like an arresting, you're arresting every thought and affection and reasoning, desire, imagination, whatever it might be, and saying, I'm holding it hostage to the, to the, to the word of God. That's not appropriate. That's not what God would have me to think. That's not honoring to him. I want to make sure I'm um, putting those things away, uh, taking them hostage, taking them captive. And so, in another sense, in one sense, you're the Roman executioner overseeing the crucifixion of your left of your of your flesh. What you're trying to do is cut off anything that gives it life. That is, if if it's certain places that you're at, certain things you're doing, certain activities, certain stimulus of whatever you might be thinking or someone might be singing a song and that song reminds you of something. I mean, it could be something, whatever it might be, that gives that impulse life. You want to be cutting that off and want to be um, taking aim at that type of thing. Killing sin, knowing how it stages itself up and how it gets power over you is so critical. I like this illustration of uh, from uh, John Owen. It says this, When a man is nailed to a cross... He at first struggles and strives and cries out with a great strength and might. But as his blood and spirits waste, his strivings are, are faith and self. Are, are, I don't know, it's not supposed to be faith. Her strivings are few, I think is what it means, and seldom. 
He cries low and hoarse and scarce to be heard. So when a man first determines to conquer a lust or sin, to deal with it in earnest, it struggles with great violence to break loose. In other words, like when you first start trying to kill sin, you have a harder battle, right? Because there's still life in it. It says, but by mortification, the blood and the spirits are let out, move seldom and faintly, cry sparingly and scarce heard in the heart. It may sometimes have a dying pain that makes an appearance of vigor and strength, but it is quickly over, especially if it's kept from considerable success. So you're trying to cripple the sin that keeps taking over you. Whatever you have to do, whatever, if it's a location, if it's a schedule thing that you need to change up, uh, whatever, it's, whatever is causing the opportunities for your flesh to abound, you're, you're cutting that all off. Yes, sir. Help me. Power of the Spirit of God cannot be realized apart from the Word of God. Indeed. John 15 said, You can't you can do nothing apart from Him. He's the living Word. He gave us the inspired Word. The Spirit will not work outside of that. Indeed. That's right. That's a good point. That's good. It's good to think about and close on that one. I was going to tell you about a message I heard. If you have a chance this week, you should go out to, to find this message John MacArthur preached called um, Hacking Agag to Pieces. Have you ever heard that message? Okay. That's what we're talking about here, and it's an excellent message. You should go get more teaching on that. All right, let's close in word prayer. Thank you, Father, for the word. Thank you for the reminder that the word of God is a valiant weapon in our hands. Lord, help us not to neglect it, to use it fully, and to be scanning our hearts and our affections, our mind, our thinking, the things that give um, motivation to pursue sin. Help us to, uh, to lay those things to, to waste by your spirit. And if we by the spirit put the death the deeds of the body, the Bible says that we shall live. We're grateful for that promise and help us now. We'll need your help to do the battle and to stay at the fight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.